Everything's a mess. This episode was a mess. Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnell. On today's episode, Sean and I discuss the influence of Asian culture on contemporary Western art, how this influence is and isn't taught in art school, and what this all can teach us about American culture as a whole. Hi, Sean. Hey, Mason. How's it going, Sean? It's going all right. We're all still alive. The world is in a shape. The world is in a shape. We live in a society and the world is in a shape. And we ain't dead yet. We are in, this is our second episode for the AAPI month. This one's a little bit looser than our previous episode. John, would you like to introduce our our topic today? Yeah, I think I don't necessarily know about it in all disciplines in the fine art world, but today we're going to talk about Eastern influences in Western fine art, because I think you can find it just about everywhere, for better or for worse. And I'm, I think this episode um, is going to be less a historic overview, although we will talk history quite a bit here. Um, but I think that this is a conversation worth having as two people who have studied art in Western schools. I think it's a, a conversation worth having to just sort of reflect on how, you know, how Western classrooms teach about Eastern art if we want to break down into that dichotomy, and how poorly that's done, and also just blind spots for everyone, maybe. Absolutely. Go ahead. (laughs) Commence 55 minutes of me ranting about modernist art. Go, do it. This is your dream. So a jumping off point for this conversation was an essay that I read in undergrad called In Praise of Shadows by a... Japanese author named Junichiro Tanazaki. It's an influential essay. We could probably do a whole episode on the essay. Just the essay itself. I think just like discussing it would be interesting. Yeah. But I think about it a lot because it was really influential to me when I read it when I was 20, maybe. I read it for the first time. It's short. You can find it online. Uh, There are three or four... English translations of it now. And it was really influential on me, I think because it was one of the first serious pieces of writing that was critical of Western aesthetics. And as somebody who had been studying and interested in visual aesthetics for their entire life, having somebody come along and say, you know what, the the way that Europeans make stuff is awful was, you know, was kind of relevatory. It was kind of an exciting sort of, I don't know. It was just exciting. It was introduced to me in a class where we were talking about sort of theoretical concepts in photography. Like you have you have your mechanical knowledge now. We we know the chemistry, we know the physics of it. We have basic composition. Now let's start talking about ways of seeing and ways of thinking about seeing. And in this class there was some focus on the relationship between light and shadow, between white and black, which which are two f- massive forces in photography, right? I don't, you know, that is what photography, especially black and white photography is. And so this was sort of one half of a theoretical exercise. 
how have you been taught to think about light? And how can you think about shadow instead? Right? What can you learn from a culture that, in this case, in this presentation of this essay, is thinking shadow outward to massively simplify it? Um, so I, I was encouraged to buy this essay. It's only like 58 pages long. It's, it's really short. And it was relevatory. But one thing that was sort of missing from the conversation, and I don't hold anybody, this was not done in malice, I do not think. But one thing that was really missing was, what is the implication of a white professor teaching mostly white students, or at least non-Japanese students, about art culture from a Japanese lens? <laughs> and and that, that's just a thing that I've thought about a lot since since I first picked up this essay. Um, I didn't get to read the whole thing, but I got to read the forward about it before we started recording today. What I loved was he was essentially railing against the Western ideas of cleanliness, meaning this kind of gauche shininess, and his particular <laughs> his particular screed against Western porcelain toilets <laughs> and how just coal and like what I loved it was not only was it just like blindingly shiny and just cold and unfeeling and he touched on how it just doesn't feel real it feels so wildly artificial and that got me thinking about when you see all those bajillionaires mega homes that are all just chrome and shiny and sparse and i think this can lead into a conversation that you can lead us on better about minimalism for anybody who hasn't read this essay it was written in 1933 it has some very problematic things to say about women, um, particularly prostitutes. Um, Tanazaki was known for his overtly and sometimes aggressively sexual content in his novels. You know, man of his time aside, like, you know, we'll, we'll put that out there. But he, he begins by talking about sort of modern living spaces and the issues of how do you hide hot water pipes and electrical lines and rice paper. And how can you have a stove in your main living room that has the same romance as a coal stove, but the convenience of an electric stove, it's not possible. And then he goes on to this long screed about toilets <laughs> and about just how awful European toilets are and their porcelain and their bathrooms in general, they're porcelain and they're white and they're bleached and they're all chrome and everything must be perfectly clean. And what is truly better is getting up in the morning, wandering outside to the, the outdoor bath and stepping into this all wooden enclosure and, and relieving yourself among rotting wood and the dew of the morning. <laughs> it's really quite a thing and it make it it's one of those things that makes me wish that I had some knowledge of Japanese so I could read this in Japanese because if this translation is so intensely passionate to the point of being ridiculous I just wonder what that experience is in the native language right as it was intended to be read <laughs> there's always something lost in translation Right. And and it and it is certainly both a level of subtlety and a level of genuine feeling. So, um toilets aside, <laughs> why this was so exciting to me was it was it was some of the first art theory that I read 
that put shadows first, right? That's not really something that we encounter in a lot of Western art. If we think about how we talk about painting, um, it's all based on light. You know, chiaroscuro, heavily influential. Everyone painting in the Renaissance, once they figured out perspective, were all about like, well, how's light work? <laughs> and in Western culture, we talk about art from a point of view of light. One of the first questions that comes up in art class is like, where's the light source? How is light affecting this? And so to read something that was like, you know what? The important thing is not light, it's shadow, right? The important thing is not what's revealed, but what's hidden and what through being hidden can be revealed. And that is just such a relevatory idea when you're 20, right? Is that uh, that that idea of telling through hiding, right? The less is more kind of thing. So it's hilarious to me that rising aesthetic that we can tie, I think, most directly to Eastern influences and, you know, speaking about contemporary aesthetics is this hyper-minimalism that you get on, like, Instagram is what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Or I was thinking about aesthetics today and I was sort of scrolling through web pages and stuff and some downtime at work, you know, just like looking at ways that things are presented. And I ended up, I, I, in a moment of inspiration, I went to the Urban Outfitters website <laughs> and all their shit. It, like, that is that is a perfect example. You know, a white web page with, you have pictures of people, pretty people doing things, right? But all of their products, I went to the life, the lifestyle tab where they have their cameras and their vinyl records and their designer vibrators. And all of the items were just either the object on white, right? Or like this very minimal, particularly for the vibrators, like this art object in a shadowy room. Mm-hmm. Just enough light to highlight it and then, you know, it creates this ambiance. But everything is just plain. Everything is empty, right? It is the smallest sum of parts possible, which I think Tanazaki would look at that and just be absolutely furious. But you know that the people that are designing that read Tanazaki in school. Right. And I think it's this misinterpretation of like, they take this less is more and then forget kind of the heart or the vein of it, which uh, quote me or cut this if it's wrong, but it's, this austereness is to do with respect to the environment and or the object or and or the art that you're presenting right and there's there's a very thoughtful heart to it all that we lose when we make everything look like an apple product right so how respectful can any of this be if if the point of it is to sell products right and that that's what the point of urban outfitters website is obviously that's what the point of most of the things on Instagram are. But I mean, you see this in visual arts as well, right? This idea of stripping things down, absolutely. The minimalist abstraction, which I think it can't be denied that that has its roots in Western understanding of particularly Japanese, but Asian culture as a whole, right? Particularly its understanding of the religions and faiths of that part of the world. Yeah. On that topic... It's fascinating to me how it's like that lazy thing where it's a monolith, where everything kind of gets subsumed into one, when so clearly there's so many different ideas, religions, economies, governments, etc. Right. 
Right. There's all that, all that just smushing it together. But then at the same time, a lot of like the Western aping of aesthetics feels like it, it almost like, like how we we're already discussing it. It comes down to almost entirely Japanese that they ape. Maybe because they're too, because the West is too scared of China politically for whatever reason. Communism, baby. For better or for reasons that make sense, but also don't. No, I, <laughs> in the way that we're talking about this, right? Like even talking about Japan, which is, as far as ancient cultures go, Japan is a surprisingly steady culture, right? Like, it's not a very big place, and I think that that helps. I am by no means an expert on Japanese history, but, you know, from my understanding, like, a considerable part of it has been unified for a very long time. It has had sort of cohesive movements of culture, and especially during the Industrial Revolution in the West and the... Uh, shogunate there, it was a particularly unified body for better and for worse, right? So I think for those reasons, it becomes very easy to think of Japan as this monolithic thing. Right. And I think that Japan carries an outside outsized weight for a number of reasons in Western aesthetics. I wonder how much of it is because for so long Japan was this mysterious, unknowable place, right? Mm-hmm. Where... Uh, the West had access to China forever. There were, you know, since the Silk Road, right? Right. There were there were trade routes and and that movement and and even into India and all over the Asian Pacific and everything. Once Britain got its hands in everything, and once the Dutch got their hands in everything, it all just sort of bled into Europe much quicker than Japan did, which always remained this sort of mythical place, which is how we still talk about it. Right. How. <laughs> There's a whole subculture of non-Japanese people being obsessed, to put it lightly, with certain aspects of Japanese culture, and it is um, a fascinating car crash to watch. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I have, I have a book of uh, of Chinese art here. It's a Chinese art book. It's like a. It's really great. It's it's this big thick history of um, Chinese art from like ancient pottery up through. I think the 1990s. Mm. That's the only book on on Chinese aesthetics that I have, right? Like everything else that references Asian art almost is some Japanese reference, even in like binding styles and stuff. It's just not, it's not there as much. You choose to study Chinese art, mm-hmm. for example, right? Or you you choose to study Korean art, but Japanese art is always there when you study it in the West. Yeah, so then that gets me thinking about a Western education in formal music theory and how, boo, it's bad. It's all it's all <laughs> Europe. That's all you're getting, y'all. Um, even when you just take the historical, like, let's go from the beginning, which I think we attribute from my public school education to the Greeks and like the basic formation of idea of written music and or music that was at all recorded or formalized it's just a big old europe party and we just are forever indebted to european ideals and development without ever acknowledging anything that's going on in outside of europe we don't get anything i think from my, like, not perfect, but general music history until we get to something around, like, Puccini and we get to the idea of Orientalism as a trend. And we go, great. 
this this could not possibly go wrong, <laughs> um, even though that term itself. <laughs> when historically was that? I want to say mid eighteen hundreds. Giacomo Puccini. Yeah, mid late mid late eighteen hundreds. And that's when we're getting into this era of romantic, larger-than-life opera. Well, and as a side note, that is when Commodore Matthew Perry shows up on the shores of Japan and forces them to open up to the West. Uh, yikes! That happens in 1853. Right. And Japan finally is forced to give in and begin trading. Though they were trading with the Dutch through one port for some time before that. So it all makes sense. I mean, that lines up because that that lines up with a boom of Japanese aesthetics and, and interest in Japan in general and Europe, particularly. Everyone from Van Gogh to Monet is well. All the impressionists, right, are really interested in Japanese woodblock prints in particular. Yes. So it makes sense that it would uh, bleed into music as well. Yes. And probably theater too. I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, which opera is in, you know, its broadest sense, mm-hmm. uh, especially uh, Debussy had his whole um, Japonisme, is that what he called it? Japonisme, I don't know. You can correct my French, everyone else, but he also put that in there, which like they love boiling down ostensibly to using pentatonic scales. And you're like, okay, there's a little more to Eastern music than that. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a, just a, just a skosh. Um but you know my <laughs> my biggest qualm, and I will forever rail about this. We've been railing about this since we talked to Angela. Is like, really, Madam Fucking Butterfly? I do not never need to see another fucking production of that ever again. Please stop. Stop, Madam Butterfly. Stop reprinting the Great Wave. Just there are other things. And you ain't slick when you just like recontextualize it but tell the exact same story. Stop, please. Anyways. <laughs> then when you then it inevitably like eastern influences especially east asian influences in classical music come in the like ominous way like post-communism china and all that of oh wait all these east asian children are real good at this oh shit they're all very good at this right and they're all spending their entire lives doing this what now and the answer is not there are works out there that are bridging-ish the gaps of like Eastern ideas and melodies being written by East Asian people in the context of Western classical music um, to varying degrees. And like there's people like Tan Tuan, who's, you know, a big deal composer. But it's just all a relative footnote in the Western musical canon. Right. And just like you've mentioned, any time you want to specifically look at a specific country's music or even anything in the non-Western canon, you go into ethnomusicology, which is a separate degree that you folk them basically says, you decided to just want obsess over one country and learn their shit. Right. <sighs> right. And this all smacks of the problem that even when people begin using music, for example, begin using musical ideas from Eastern compositional styles, we still have to cram them in, or it's felt that we need to cram them into the Western form, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm not an expert on that in music, although I have some understanding about, like, you know, how fundamentally different Western classical music operates than 
for lack of a better term, Eastern classical music, right? Then the classical, quote unquote, classical music you might find in Japan or in Korea or in Vietnam or China, etc. Side note, Debussy's <laughs> La Mer was literally inspired by the Great Wave, which, oh my God, how thuddingly literal can we all get here, y'all? <laughs> La Mer is a gorgeous piece of music, but oh my God. So when you are looking at the woodblock prints of, of the 17th through 19th centuries, I'm going to butcher the Japanese term for it. Ukiyoe, I believe is how you say it. Just the way that they think about perspective. And this is a really excellent example. And we talk about this in art school. When you talk about the influence that Japanese art has on Western art, the fact that Japan develops almost entirely insulated in this in this time period, right, particularly the 17th through the 19th centuries, their art doesn't have the influence of the Renaissance on it mm. in that time, or, or very, very little, right? And so they come up with an entirely new way of seeing, which is what makes it really appealing to photographers, right? Like, the ideas of how perspective works in Japanese, traditional Japanese art, is what I think Western painters would call incorrect, right? If you presented it that way, right? It's not mathematically, it's not the mathematical ideal. There's no, it's not three point perspective. It's not how the quote unquote, the real world works, right? It is some different system of seeing, which makes it fascinating if you are studying it and sort of the modernist kind of ideal and things like the way that Japan developed books, right? Very different than how Europe develops books and in the ways that Japan developed like scrolls, like images that exist as a timeline and even particular Japanese storytelling, which is not focused always on the hero's journey. Sometimes the story is just about a feeling or an idea. All of these things are so different than the almost militant way that post-Renaissance West thought about art. They don't fit into our concept of art if we try to cram them into the European ideals, right? To actually understand them, you have to, like, step out of that completely, which can be incredibly difficult to do, sometimes impossible, right? It's, it's speaking an actual entirely different language because it is coming from a different zero point. Whether or not you realize it, you've been raised to see the world and hear the world in a very specific way, mm -hmm. and it is different than... And again, we're focusing on Japanese art here, but it holds true across any art form that is not Western European. There's a fundamental misunderstanding that, that is not achievable without a background that doesn't inherently exist, right? You have to, you have to search that out. So when we, when we start bringing the elements in, it's a very slippery slope right down to complete and utter misunderstanding of, of the point of the original thing. <laughs> Which, like, a great modern example of us in the 21st century real-time doing that is KonMari, right? Where we all just, a lot of people just boil down to, well, I don't want to give away my books. Great, you're still missing the point of what she's asking you to do. jeez. <laughs> oh, but even, uh, what was her name? Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo. Even just that presentation and, and the way that people that I know who got really into it and this is not, not to, meant to insult anybody who enjoyed that Netflix show. 
But even just that presentation of it is such a Western ideal. Mm -hmm. Sean, you and I were talking the other day about this, about how it lacks the basic spiritual connection or foundation for that, right? Right. And so when you just apply it with a broad brush, like lacquer over top of Western minimalism, it all kind of comes apart at the edges, you look at it too hard. Right. She was a Shinto priestess before all of that. And maybe part of the reason, maybe part of the marketing is that they that they remove largely the spiritualism into this broad appealing the secret ism kind of stuff that everyone loves to read and give Oprah money for. Self help. Yeah, that fun genre. Let we'll take that down one day too, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um Right, so maybe that's part of the marketing tool, but then it just is adding to this ever-growing refuse pile of this vague othering <laughs> of Eastern culture and ideas where just like, ooh, and you're like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we, we, could, we can be a little more nuanced thinking than that, y'all. So the question that always comes up around these sorts of conversations, though, is... What's the difference between inspiration and appropriation? Is it valid for me to read Danazaki and think in my stupid Western brain, oh, shadows are good, you know, and like use that shadow out approach in my art, you know? Is that influence valid, right? Can, can we appreciate Marie Kondo for the potential of self-help, self-betterment through buying better storage containers and getting rid of our books, you know, and, and is it okay to do that without truly understanding where that ideology comes from? I don't know that there's an answer to that, right? I think the general answer always is when you don't get it, research, please. Right. But no one, almost, almost no one ever does or, you know, <laughs> because it's, pa or because it's packaged for you right. in a way you think like, oh, this, this is that, this is everything. Okay, cool. I'm fine. Right. And it's, it's really easy to read one or two essays and say, oh, well, I get this. I got this. Yeah. You know, I, I understand <laughs> it. I'm not an expert, but I get it. Right. I, I don't know. I think it's tough too, that like we are lacking an ability to talk about these things with that nuance of like this particular aspect was an inspiration to me. I read this thing, I had this understanding from it, and I took this very specific thing from it. Might be out of context, I might not fully understand all of it, and I'm not claiming ownership over it, but I still got this from it. And even that, as I'm saying it out loud, feels problematic in like an intellectual sort of way. Right. But it's not I don't think it's possible to avoid it. Right. I think I think it's like fine for personal use. It's just the extra gauche thing, especially because we just operate under capitalism, is the profiting off of it or assuming or pretending mastery or authority of these things that you clearly don't have mastery or authority of or the right even the right cultural context for right i think that's when we get into the gauche part the the using your misunderstanding of this thing as the the way to market it the japanese inspired tea set
Ooh, there, there, there's been so many fun ones during pandemic. Ooh, um, there was these bunch of white ladies that made mahjong, which are, you know, it was like Chinese poker, but not really. That's a very vague way of saying it, right? An important cultural game for China. And these white ladies made the approachable mahjong sets, which were just them removing the Chinese characters and putting, like, pineapples on them. <laughs> and then selling these sets for th- $300. <laughs> And then insisting there was a subset of mahjong that was called Western mahjong that is that existed. <laughs> and y'all, we need a fact check on that. Even so, like, I could imagine some merchant somewhere saying, oh, I could sell this to white people, you know, like, I could sell this to Europeans. And then, but that not actually being a thing, you know. Right. Let the Asian people do it first, okay? Let us make money off of your white guilt First, before <laughs> you colonize us, please, in that order, but I'm please. Say, I'm saying that that might be their source material, right? Right. They found <laughs> some old, crusty white guy. And when I was researching this today, I didn't have a whole lot to do at work. We might cut this part. I didn't have a whole lot to do at work, so this is part of what I was doing. The joys of working a nine-to-five. You pursue the thing you actually care about. I rewatched a video from Vox about Japanese photographers post- Matthew Perry. I like that his name is Matthew Perry because I know that it's not the actor from Friends, but I... I'm imagining it right now. I'm imagining him in the 19th century American Navy getup, pulling up in his steamship and uh, asking Japan if they would open the door for him. I don't know. (laughs) The answer's no. Okay. Uh, I don't even know enough about Matthew Perry to make a Matthew Perry joke. (laughs) Um, And it was interesting to watch because it's that class of information that exists in my brain. I've learned it a hundred times. I don't immediately have a use for it, and it pops up sometimes in conversation. Um, And then otherwise, I forget about it until it comes up in a video, and I go, oh, yeah, I forgot about this entire vein of photographic material. And the history of photography in Japan is fascinating because after Japan's forced to open up and a bunch of European and American photographers show up and start setting up studios, Japanese, mostly men, got their hands on those studios after the Europeans died or left or sold them or whatever and began photographing and began making photographs specifically to export to Europeans (laughs) because they knew that they would pay great amounts of money for these photographs of Japanese men in samurai armor and Japanese women in traditional kimonos, stuff that people didn't wear anymore, depicting classic scenes from from these woodcuts that we talked about before. They weren't made for Japanese people. They were made for white people to buy. And Japanese photographers were photographing Japan and like making that work for themselves and for they're their countrymen and, and countrywomen, but there was a whole subgenre of it's this beautiful story. It's beautiful in a sad way, but of all right, Western capitalism, you want to come in and you want to force us to to be a part of it. Well, we're going to carve this little bit off and sell it back to you and make an incredible amount of money because we know you're dumb enough to buy it and believe it. As tragic and awful as it is, there's some tiny little sliver of beauty in that, I always thought. There's a lot of cackling humor in it. 
Mm-hmm. That I don't know why that makes me think of. It makes me think of K-pop, which is not exactly a one for one because my understanding K-pop it was at least originally meant to be for Koreans and there's still a lot of debate on like what counts as K-pop or not especially when like they're trying to make all white groups of it and you're like no can you please all white groups of K-pop exactly yeah yeah no how does that work shh, shh. they sing in Korean they think it counts and you're like no there's just the same guy that's been sitting behind the big mahogany desk on the top floor of Capitol Records. He's smoking a stogie. He's been there since, you know, 1951. <laughs> and he's like, you know what we could do? And get a bunch of white people singing Korean. <laughs> they seem to like it on the internet. I think that's what that's called. They like it. The kids these days, they like it. Have we had white people do it yet? <laughs> Um, but it is a fascinating genre watch slowly take over the world, much in a similar foothold in a way like anime does. But what I find fascinating about its music, which, you know, if you don't listen to it, I understand why, but also you're like, give it a chance. Not all of it's what you think it is. But what I think it does best is when it's aping slash almost satirizing Western pop cranky at the 12 and then putting seven more atomic bombs of glitter on it and it's like reinterpreting your shit and giving it back to you right but better (laughs) which if we want to be super reductionist about post-world war ii asian culture especially once again in japan and asian industrialization in general like that's what it is it's it's looking to the west looking at what they are buying figuring out how to make it cheaper and better and quicker and then just doing the shit out of it until (laughs) all of the American producers of it are gone because they've all run out of money, right? (laughs) When was the last time you bought a Ford car? Let's be real. When was the last time you bought a Ford car that was built in the United States? Bada-bing. That also didn't suck. (laughs) I'm calling it now, Ford. And who is the... I, I don't know if they still are, but... A few years ago, the number one automobile employer in the United States was Toyota, a Japanese company, right? Japan killed the U.S. steel industry. (laughs) Like, you know. Oops. Maybe we should stop sticking our nose in places if if we really want to be these big dick swinging capitalists. (gasps) We're going to beat you at the game. (laughs) Right. And that's been our plan all along. We are all sleeper cells. Oh, wait, I can't talk about that yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, you included, Sean. Just a commie sleeper cell. That's all I am. Right, right. You wanna you wanna talk about? <laughs> do you do you really want to go down that road? And reinforce that conspiracy theory. Which? Oh my God! Please stop. And what strikes me? It's a difficult thing. I feel like for me to talk about super objectively because I am, of course, on what I wouldn't consider the wrong side of history part of it, right? As a white person, (laughs) through no fault of my own, you know, like, it's really difficult to look at this stuff and think about the ways in which I was educated, for example, and separate these things, right? Like, seeing that, I think if you have any level of empathy, that's not necessarily hard, right? If, If you have Empathy and critical thinking, you can look at your own education and you can go, oh, wait, these things are maybe kind of problematic. The difficult 
thing to do there, though, is like, what do you do with that, right? And like, how how do you take steps in your own practice, right, as an artist, and in your own life as an American to recognize the parts of your assumed culture that came from other places, right? It's and and, and this is not just limited to Asian culture, right? This is there's no American culture. It's just shit we stole from everywhere else. And then, um, you know, put Chrome on it and Bakelite and, you know, then in the 1980s made it out of plastic. Like that's, (laughs) that's American culture, but it's, it's difficult once you pull these things apart to go, okay, what is the productive way for me to use this information? I know the parts of my background that are problematic. And by my background, I mean, my, own education and my own consumption and, and and my own culture, right? And how do I how do I make that into a productive thing? How do I take it and and understand where it comes from and pay respect to those things without, you know, losing my own ability to express myself, etc. That's that is a, a difficult question that I don't know I don't know if there's an answer to that. I think hmm, hmm. Just undo racism. Let's go. Um, <laughs> right, right there. Solved it. Just solved done it. Done and done. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I guess the first step is making sure that everyone knows that it fucking exists because people either willfully ignore it or generally don't know about, know how to kind of understand and grapple with that. And, you know, it all boils down to arts education and general cultural education. Please fucking learn about it. Please, right. please, please think about it. Let the children learn. Please. Let the children learn. They don't need another football, you know? Oh, no, please. Buy, buy, them, buy them some paints. They don't, they don't need another tetherball. Is that still a thing? Do kids, can you play tetherball anymore? I feel like it's a thing. Do we want to be those old people? Yeah, I, I think it's still there. I don't know. I don't know anybody who lost any fingers playing it. I'm trying to remember where it was, but I think some Midwest town hall or something, and it was all these white parents saying that they don't want their kids to learn about critical race theory. And it, the clip I just remember is, just because I don't want my kids to learn about critical race theory doesn't mean I'm racist. And you're like, but you are. <laughs> and maybe it's not your fault. Maybe it's it's not entirely your fault. It, it's, right. it's a culture, American propaganda... Etc. 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 But yes, we're asking you to confront this uncomfortable thing about it's wrong. We're all wrong. Right. We're all wrong right. about everything, always. <laughs> and that's okay. The first step is admitting that you have a problem. But you know, when I say that it's not your fault, right? Being the culture that you were raised in is not your fault inherently. Right. Right. Like, like having. I think that it is fair to say, and I know that some people will disagree with me on this, but I think that it is fair to say, if we're going to have a nuanced discussion about this and we're going to actually try to root it out of culture, that having racist things taught to you as a child, you know, that that instill racist views, for example, are not inherently your fault. It becomes your fault when you refuse to acknowledge and change them, right? Hmm. So if you're if you're growing up in in uh, I don't know fucking 
you know, southern state. Yeah, bumfuck McNowhere. Right. And you hear throughout school that the Civil War was not about race. It was about states' rights. Mm-hmm. It was about states' rights, and they just had a disagreement, and the South lost, but we will raise again, right? And then you are exposed to other viewpoints. The immediate reaction is going to be, oh, no, I'm under attack, right? Mm-hmm. But at some point, this happens to everybody, right? Unless you are living a, a truly, completely shut-off life from the outside world, you are exposed to other people with other experiences, right? And at that point, you get to make a choice, and you get to continuously make the choice to either say, what are these people doing? That's not my experience. What can I learn from it? And what does it undo about my own uh, upbringing? Or you can say, no, fuck that, I'm right, right? And that that it, it's at that point that it makes it your fault. And at any point, you can change your mind about that approach. And that doesn't mean that past decisions were not your fault, right? But then moving forward, you grow as a person. Or you can continue having it be your fault. And one of the most important steps to making sure that people have that opportunity to make that decision and know that they can make that decision is through education. That doesn't involve the football, right? That involves the humanities. That involves art. That involves, you know, literature and and involves history that is not just Greece, Rome, World War II, and then now, right? Um, and that that in, that allows for complications of like, were Japanese internment camps really that different than what Germany was doing on paper and in practice? Or where did slavery come from? And then how did we continue it, right? How did Jim Crow, you know, like there, there's all this, this nuance there and the only, so you know what? We can be, we can be a not racist country at some point down the road. Like we, everybody can possibly theoretically make that decision. Um, but to do that. To do that, you have to admit that you're racist to begin with, mm-hmm. to quote all of our politicians this week who said that America is not a racist country, but, and you go, right? oh, no. And Mason, thank you for teaching me about white culture. This has been such a fulfilling experience. There's no such thing as white culture. We stole all of it. <laughs> Thanks for teaching me all the theft you've done. Which I guess I guess that does make it culture, right? What is culture? Who the fuck knows? At what point at what point does Tanazaki become white culture? <laughs> Once we've messed it up like about six times and it just becomes shadows, good, light, bad, period. Once we begin building our bathrooms out of wood again on purpose. For the aesthetic. That's when we'll know. Right. Yeah. Of course, we'll get that confused too. And it'll be like a return to our frontier days. Ooh. You know, Mm. our roots. No, thanks. Of starvation. Ooh, no thanks. On the great American desert. Western Europe. Y'all y'all were not very good with the hygiene, so no thank you. <laughs> y'all had some really messed up ideas about medicine. Ooh, no, don't do that. No, why, why would you put leeches on her? Stop that. Why do you think bleeding is good, especially when it kills that many people when you do it? Well, we killed the right thing before we killed you, you know? Right. You felt better. 
halfway through the bloodletting. Or was I just dizzy? Yeah. I don't know. It's. I wanted to have this conversation with you as a reflection on this idea of the sort of sapping of particularly Asian culture, but I suppose all cultures, into the now monolith that is Western art. It's difficult to even still make that distinction because so much of the modern world is bleeding into what feels like, what is not always, but what often feels like a monoculture in a lot of ways with tiny little pockets, right? And so I think that that also complicates the appropriation discussion in ways that we don't always recognize. It's really easy to have the argument on Twitter that this is an this is appropriation. No, it's not appropriation, and lose the nuance of how did we get here in the first place, and where is appropriation, and and where is just cultural conversation? Yeah. So educate yourself, educate your kids. Please examine everything you have ever learned. Assume it's <laughs> it's most likely been racist or harmful to other cultures. So unlearn that shit, please. Yeah. Embrace the harm in your field. It's there. It's always there. Recognize the harm in your field and embrace its history, right? Like, there's this trap that is easy to fall down in American and European medicine, which is largely based on torturing poor people and on torturing minorities, right? And a lot of, and torturing animals. Um, And a lot of our, let's say, greatest advancements were products of that torture. A lot of our understanding of medicine comes from that sort of torture. That is true throughout history, at least throughout the history of Europe. And so I think that we can recognize that and also recognize that it's a really good thing to know how to do surgery, right? Right. And I think that that is true in art too. Like, as an artist, you no matter what you do, you have a responsibility to recognize the faults of the art that came before you. And that doesn't mean that you're supposed to cancel everybody or or whatever the fuck, right? Like, Picasso was a fucking piece of shit, right? Indeed. But we're going to talk about Picasso until the sun burns out. And even when we stop talking about Picasso, Picasso's still going to be there. He's going to show up. Influenced a lot of people. And there's a whole lot of that. Everywhere. And in Japan, there are harmful figures there. Part of the point of an education is to understand the foundations of where you came from. And part of that understanding of those foundations is all of the blemishes and boils along with the triumphs, right? And I think that no matter what Twitter says, we can live in a world that recognizes that forcing Japan to open in 1853 or 1854 was a horrifically terrible thing to do and also created contemporary art as we know it. Mm -hmm. We can think about, you know, these things and we we are able to compartmentalize them. We can't have those conversations online in short form. And I think that one of the important steps to, for lack of a better term, curing this whole problem debacle is figuring out how to have those conversations outside of Twitter. But like we keep saying, like we will say until we either die or give up on this podcast, 
the most important thing that you can do is to go get an education, right? Choose to study art and choose to study culture. And when you go to when you go to college, if you go to college, if you can go to college, if you have the luxury of going to college, take classes that you are not interested in. Please. You know, and particularly in the humanities. And learn about stuff that you don't know anything about. Take an art class and learn about art from an artist. And even if you are terrible at it, even if you believe that you are terrible at it, internalize what you learned from it and let it grow you as a person. Because if you continue to ignore those things and if you continue to choose not to understand where parts of your culture come from, you are continuing to make the conscious choice of being the problem. It's not your fault until it is. And it is when you make that choice. So the moral of the story is we don't need more doctors or lawyers go to art school. It's so perfect way to end as we're in a global pandemic. <laughs> You're all going to die anyway. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Just take it. Just take it. Have fun. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter? <laughs>